0: The first business that I started was really what I call an accidental business, uh, uh, opportunistic. A college friend of mine was having trouble sourcing some computers. I said, let me take a crack at it. Before you know it, he was feeding me business, and I did over half a million dollars worth of business in 18 months as a side hustle in the early 90s. And I said said to my wife, I'm going to quit my $60,000 a year job and um, become an entrepreneur, and I never looked back. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now, to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 202. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Good. Doing pretty well. 202. That's a cool number. Over yeah. 200 now. I know. It's crazy, right? What have you been up to lately, man? Uh, nothing too much. We went to the U.S. Open here in New York a couple of days this week, so that's always fun to see. Pretty uh, crowd out there. So fun to see everything kind of opening up a little bit, getting back to normal. Had some friends and family visits, so always good to see people. Uh, what about you? Yeah, a bit of the same. Kids getting back in the swing of school, and obviously we get the holiday weekend here and some other stuff, but... Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great time of year, man. Fall, I start – I don't know what it is about this time of year. I always kind of get a little bit refocused on some of my goals and kind of revisit them. I try to do things in chunks of quarters and obviously, we're kind of moving into that end the third quarter, going into the fourth quarter. So, I like to revisit some of those things. And one of those things, you and I are t- talking a little bit about the show, is just asset classes in general and the expansion of asset classes, especially in the – you know from the traditional realm, you know – more recently, we've seen what people diversify to some degree or, or invest in crypto that we hadn't seen before. We, we talked about that a little bit and just just re- as a more recent guests have come on, we've seen more and more be interested in crypto. I think part of that was the democratization of it where you can buy some of this on on uh, Robinhood and some of these other sites. And then also these NFTs. I mean, I don't have any of those spe- specifically. I do have a little bit of crypto, but those have popped up. ART. Uh, collectible cars. There's all sorts of these interesting asset classes that one are are, are available more so than maybe they were in the past. And it, at a cheaper price, kind of like how index funds are made buying the 500 top companies the S&P much easier than it used to be before you had to like kind of structure your own portfolio as such. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to to watch the development of all these things. Yeah, and as we talk about alternative asset classes, you mentioned our well, – we can go into some of the numbers there just because we mentioned last week on the intro that we would. But there's other – I mean one thing that stands out or that we've heard on the show is baseball cards. Remember the guy yep. who bought baseball or – I don't know if it was just baseball but sports cards I guess, right? as collector's items that appreciate in value. We've talked obviously gold and silver has come up several times on the show. Uh, we've talked, I think, watches and jewelry, Rolex, right? I have a friend who just bought a Rolex who said it's up a thousand dollars. I think he bought it for eight thousand. Now it's worth like eighty seven fifty or nine thousand, just hmm. because they they limit supply and everything's back ordered, mm-hmm. and so people don't want to wait to buy it, and so they'll buy it now. It, it's just interesting. I think obviously the show focuses significantly on real estate and the stock market and all aspects of the stock market, right? Bonds and securities and stock and, and index funds and such, but. There's other things. I mean, car collections, I think, have come up a couple of times. So there's different alternative assets that come up. Um, But I read that art has appreciated at like four and a half percent from one stat I saw was from 97 to 2000. And I think since 2000, it's gone pretty crazy. But we were speaking before the show and you read that it's become a lot more popular art, that is, or, or at least interest in art. Yeah, there's a, a Deloitte report out, which you and I are both familiar, you know, with the Big Four and some of the way they they conduct these research and stuff. But one one of the big reasons I think is just the globalization, the research that's gone into it, and they kind of made some points that the the financial industry is now taking more of an interest in it as well. With you know art advisory services popping up, art lending and art investment services. On another note, too, there's been such an increased transparency level. Uh, you know, some of the, the the finance and economics and the data dissemination on some of these pieces. And, you know, it comes down to to some degree, some of these are scarce investments, right? Like you talk about the Rolex, there's only so many made or car collection, right? Like a 1957 car, I mean, there might've only been a hundred of these made or same thing with some of these, you know, sports cars. So I, I think it's interesting. And obviously I think we've seen some of our millionaires not a hundred percent allocate their investments to things that, in their mind, hey, I want to be get the highest absolute return, or you know they they have some emotional attachment or 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 want to diversify a little bit because it's kind of cool to have some of those other things as well you know, and you look at some investors that maybe choose to go the private equity route right well, I want to go invest in this private equity fund because I like that they put their money to work in the medical sector, for example, more so than maybe if I were to go buy a medical you know, driven a, or a index fund or something like that. That they they're or in a VC fund, right? I'm going to go invest in these companies that are up and coming, and maybe they hit home runs, and maybe they don't. But it's a, a little bit different mindset, right? Where there's some some impact investing or interest, uh, you know. And I think art and, and some of these other collectibles fit into that, where it's like, hey, you can enjoy this picture or this piece of art. And it's also an investment vehicle to some degree for, for some people. And, you know, at the end of 30 years of enjoying it, you know, it's worth more versus, hey, I put this money in the, you know, my, my the stock market. And sure, it's going to be worth more in 30 years, but I just watch the numbers on a paper move or on a computer screen move, right? Totally. And then, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's the same in real estate in a sense. You think it's valued at something, but who knows? I mean, every year, I mean, look how much it's gone up. In the last two years and look how much it went down quickly from two thousand ten or two thousand eight to two thousand ten. So it's hard. We all value real estate and, and stock investments and, and net worths at a certain point, but until it's really liquefied it's or liquidated. <laughs> it's hard to figure out what the true value is. Yeah, totally. And you know, obviously all those investments. And and they're not paying you a monthly dividend or cash, right? Like They're not income producing that way, but they definitely can have great returns. And, you know, if you invest in in various syndications or or people are putting the deals together, I mean, there's obviously always going to be fees pretty much in any investment. Index funds with the democratization of those and, you know, the race to zero, those are, are kind of the one that you don't, but if you go buy a piece of real estate, you got fees involved, you go buy any type of other thing, there's all sorts of fees involved, you know, in every single asset class. So some to be aware of, some to be, you know, knowledgeable about and understand, but that's just, that's just kind of how the, how things work that way. So, last week we had Mark. He's a fire marshal. His net worth is just under $1 million. But with his pension, he's definitely well over $1 million. We discussed his investments, retirement aspirations, and the mistakes he's made over the years. This week we have Henry. He has a net worth of over $2 million. He's been an entrepreneur most of his life and invests in businesses and public equities. And has an approach that is a bit different than most of the millionaires we've had on the show. So, super interesting to get into the details with Henry. Once again, if you're interested in engaging with our millionaires, submit a question uh, on our website, millionairesunveiled.com. We'll play that on the show, get some feedback from millionaires, and or Clark and I will discuss it. Also, if you're interested in any investments, let us know. We definitely uh, have some more deals coming in the pipeline, and uh, we will get on a phone call and kind of walk you through the process. So, without uh, a delay, let's get into this week's episode with Henry. Henry, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're up to now?
0: Okay. Uh, so I'm a serial entrepreneur for the last 30 years, 61 years old. I started my first company as a side hustle back in 1991. And then I had a whole series of different businesses. Started as an Apple reseller back in the day when, you know, before the Apple stores, I had a leasing company. So, uh, we built a probably 30 plus million dollar portfolio of leasing. Uh, I did factoring after 9 11, had an AV company, had a company that sold firewalls on the internet, uh, competing with firewalls.com, uh, real estate, but you know, you name it. Wherever I thought I could make money, I said, yeah, let's do that. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? A little over two million dollars. And how is that broken up? Well we're 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 buying a house now, so it's gonna shift a little bit towards the real estate side, but most of it is in large cap, mega cap stocks. I have some physical gold. Uh let's see what else. That's really like that's really my, my my wheelhouse. I don't really have much of anything in the bond market. I'm not a big investor in debt, although I've owned bonds over the years. I have some international mutual funds that gives me some exposure overseas. Uh but it's really mainly um mainly equities. And are those
1: just stocks that you buy in a brokerage account or are they retirement tax protected at all or how are the, how is
0: that kind uh, of? Divided a lot of it, up? it is a lot of it's tax a lot of it's tax protected, yeah. A lot of it is IRAs, Roth IRAs, all that sort of stuff. I have some cash accounts as well, but I do The predominant trading in the retirement vehicles because it's just easier and it's tax advantaged. Yeah. Now, is that something that,
1: that you started back when you started your investing career? Was it just going after individual stocks in those retirement accounts?
0: I bought my first stock when I was 17 back in the 1970s, Chrysler. Um,
1: I was just about to ask, what was it? So it's Chrysler, and have you held it, or did you
0: sell it, trade it? No, no, it was a, it was a, um, you know, it was a, a what you would call a swing trade. I, I didn't do much research on it. Uh, Chrysler was about to go bankrupt, and the government was going to backstop them, and they were bringing uh, Lee Iacocca from Ford, and so I thought, all right, if the government's going to backstop them. Because the stock had gotten the snot beat out of it. But it was tough back then. You know, a little history lesson for folks. Back before the internet, uh, if you wanted to get into a trade, it was 50 bucks. I traded with Merrill Lynch. If you wanted to get out of the trade, it was 50 bucks. If you traded 100 shares, they would charge you an eighth of a point. Again, this was this is back when they did it in fractions. So if you think about it, it's 12 and a half cents is, it were, were the ticks. Not like today where the tick is a penny. So your what's called slippage, your your cost to get in and out of trades was significant. Just to get in and out of that trade is is was over a hundred bucks. So you got to make some money, not like today where you know you can go to TD and they'll they'll give you two hundred free trades. They just want your business. Interesting. And you pretty much actively trade. Is that correct? You don't. You're not more of a buy and hold investor. No, I'm a, I'm a buy-in. I'm a, what you would call a, a position trader. There's really four styles. There's a the day trader, you know, buy in the morning and sell in the afternoon or vice versa. There's a the swing trader who's maybe legging in over the course of a couple days and is looking for, you know, to, to, to really bite something out of the channel. Uh, but they're not going to hold the thing for more than maybe, you know, a couple of weeks. And then a position trader – you may hold it for months or sometimes years, and then there's the, the the marathoners, the the buy and hold guys, who will buy something and then it'll be in their estate when they die. I'm of the position trader variety, so I may hold something for years if it's working, uh, but if it's if it uh, if it hits a wall, you know, I'll dump it like a bad habit. You know, a leg in over time and accumulate stuff and reinvest dividends. But if I think a stock is kind of worn out its welcome, I'll dump the whole thing in one shot and I'll find something else. Interesting. Why have you
1: chosen to to be primarily invested in equities versus say real estate or, or maybe even some of the small businesses that you've owned over the years?
0: It's what I know, it's what I grew up with. My folks were working folks. My mom was a school teacher, my dad was an engineer, but they invested in the stock market from before I was born, going all the way back to the 40s. Uh my dad used to use this stuff called um, Value Line because back th- back in the day you would subscribe to a service that would mail you the stock charts, right? That's how timely it was. So you'd be getting a stock chart that's already a month old, and he would sit there at the table with a with a ruler, and he would draw lines on it, and he would sort of figure it out, like what he wanted to buy. And that's what I saw. So, so I saw that. They always believed in investing in America, and that's what I learned. If they had invested in real estate, I probably would be a real estate guy, even though I've made money in real estate. That I had to learn. Stocks, I had to learn too, but I was exposed to it from the time, from my childhood yeah interesting and did, was their strategy similar to what the strategy you've adopted? Well, there were real buy and hold types I mean when my father passed away twenty years ago, they didn't even have a brokerage account they had they had they were buying stocks individually from the the company and everything was on an individual dividend reinvestment. They had the actual physical stock certificates in an un- in an unlocked filing cabinet in the basement of our house. And I, I took my mother by the arm and I said, uh, we're going to go down to Schwab and we're going to have them put this in an account for you because this is ludicrous. And that's what we did. You know, he just sat there and he typed in the qsip numbers. <laughs> so um, it's pretty funny. Yeah.
1: So let me ask you about your weighting in your portfolio. You said you're pretty much always overweight when we were chatting before the show in pharma, right? And, oh, and at some point in, in tech. Always.
0: So are you are you constantly reallocating? I wouldn't say constantly. Um I make incremental moves usually on a quarterly basis. Easy to fall into an overtrading mentality. Miss uh, Jesse Livermore quote, the guy, the um, confessions of a stock operator. I talked about it in my book. Uh, he was, was known as the boy plunger. He like made and lost fortunes. Most professional traders that I know, and I know a lot of them, they're fishing 90% of the time. You, you may have a little spasm of a couple trades, and then you, you sort of see how the market plays out. I think it's a fallacy to think that you can overtrade the market. People say you can't time the market. I think that's a bunch of nonsense. I think the only thing that you do is time the market, but it's very hard. hard Um, So you,
1: you invest in more actively managed mutual funds, right? Less index funds. You're not an index fund person.
0: I'm not an index fund at all. In fact, I wrote very unkind things about the index funds in my book. I think they're a joke. Because if you know how an index fund is created, you'd scratch your head and say, well, wait a second. You're telling me the committee at the S&P who decides who, who these stock 500 and usually a little more than 500 stocks are representative. Like this is the be all and end all. It just doesn't make any sense to me. The index is an, is an arbitrary. It's just a, it's a confection. It's a marketing tool, right? It's like, is it a, it's a good
1: like, way to just get broad allocation, though, and just get exposed for somebody that's just new to it?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, but you could just buy the market, right?
1: Sure, but you could buy a total stock market index fund.
0: Right, but what I do is I I, uh, I look for the sectors that I want to be in, and I like I said, I'm overweight pharma. When we had this big plunge in February, I got overweight tech. Those stocks got beat down, and I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy, you know, quote, buy the dip. So now I'm overweight tech, but that might change a year from now. And, and, I, and I've beaten the S&P six out of the, eight, the last eight years, and I've done it at a reduced risk, right, which is the thing that people conveniently forget. They'll, cha- they'll quote you chapter and verse on ROI. Can't tell me anything about risk.
1: Why do you say reduced
0: risk? Because it's reduced, right? market volatility. I'm, I'm, my beta is usually somewhere around 0.8 across my portfolio, right? So for your listeners who don't know what beta is, it's a relative measure of volatility. So if the beta of one, S&P 500 has a beta of one, that means it moves the dollar up, it moves the dollar down, right? It's it's the benchmark which where beta is compared is by having a portfolio that has reduced beta. So a stock like Tesla, I don't know, I didn't look it up right now, but might be Beta might be two. That means for every dollar that the S&P moves, it's going to move two in either direction, either up or down. Right, right. It just means it's more volatile. So my goal is to try to get 90% of what the overall market has to give, but do it for 60% of the relative risk. That, to me, is the holy grail. So that's what I'm shooting for.
1: And so you're talking companies
0: like what? Oh, I own companies like Abbott Labs. Great company. I've owned it for probably 30 right. years. Johnson right? and Johnson. Uh, I had Johnson and Johnson. I, I, I sold it during the, the swoon back last spring, right? It wasn't performing. I had 3M. 3M was a dog. I said, everybody in the world wants to buy N95 masks. Who's the biggest producer of N95 masks? 3M. Stock didn't budge. In fact, stock, stock went, went down. I'm like, well, if it's <laughs> not going up in this market, Demand? Then what's it going to take for it to go up? Sometimes it's it's comical because there's there's an old another old saying which is that a rising tide lifts all lifts all boats, right? right? So if your stock is under underperforming in a parabolic market, you got to ask yourself some fundamental questions. Oh, it'll come back. It's like what's it going to take to come back, <laughs> right? Yeah. So so when
1: you buy these, when you're allocating money to stocks or mutual funds. Is it mainly individual stocks? Is it mainly, hey, I want to go buy 3M, or is it, hey, I want to buy a mutual fund that includes 3M?
0: It's, uh, sometimes it's a mutual fund. Uh, it depends on on um, if it's if I'm if I'm looking to diversify out of the U.S. I may buy something. You know, if I'm looking for exposure in Europe or exposure in Asia, and I have some of that, it's like I don't know anything about their markets, so I'll hire a pro. I want to actively manage some guy from some big company like Fidelity or Schwab or Templeton or any one of these companies. Uh Janus is one of my favorites, even though Janus has has had its ups and downs over the last thirty years. And uh you keep a crooked eye on them. So let them give me exposure in China, so I don't have to know about that. But if it's the U.S. market and it's big companies, I keep a list of stocks that I've owned over the last you know twenty years. It's about a hundred, and sometimes I'll get in and out of them. It'll it'll run for a while, it'll fall out of favor, I'll dump it. But I'll keep an eye on it. I'll keep it on my watch list. It may get beaten down to the point where it's below value, and then I'll go and relook at it and say, "Okay, um, I made money on this before. Why can't I make money on it again?" Sure. So, is there something specific,
1: some element of criteria that you're looking for, or just something that you feel like is you can capitalize on?
0: Well, you know, you look at the at the basic metrics like the price earnings and various ratios and stuff, but it's it's easy to get seduced by that. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a hybrid because I know some guys who just trade on the fundamentals. So they're going to look at they're going to read their their 8ks and all that stuff and, and and look at all that stuff and they ignore the charts. There are other folks that I know, professional swing traders, who only look at the chart and couldn't care less what the underlying stock is. I look at both. I'm looking for a fundamentally sound company that the chart tells me is mispriced or trading below value or if I want to go short is is trading way above value and is due for a downfall and that, that the chart determines my entry and exit point but if I don't like the fundamentals of a company I may just pass on it because there's no reason to force a trade right there's no reason to own I'm not emotional about these companies that I'm investing in um, I invested in Facebook because Zuckerberg went in front of Congress unapologetically he was, uh, and I've said this on podcasts before, uh, I looked at him as an apex predator, and I said, yeah, that guy knows how to make money. I, I'm I'm going to back that guy, <laughs> right? And when you look at the fundamentals of Facebook, they're a money machine. I don't use Facebook. I could care less. I'm in this to make money.
1: And we, I pressed you on it because I think you're one of the few people that we've had on the show that are, or I guess we have had, Jace, right, some single stock investors, but not many mutual Fund actively managed, I guess, more mutual funds, right? Mainly index funds, and some people that dabble in single stocks just for fun. But anyway, I think it's an interesting conversation. So, shifting now to your entrepreneurial journey, you mm-hmm. mentioned a bunch of these businesses at the beginning. They're all pretty different, right? How how did that come to be?
0: Well, you know, I, I'm I'm an electrical engineer, so I have, uh, and it's funny if you if you meet professional traders you'll find probably 3 out of 5 are engineers. It's just one of those things that that your your brain is sort of wired that way. But they're all sort of in and around money or tech. The first business that I started was really what I call an accidental business, uh, uh, opportunistic. You know, a college friend of mine was trying to having trouble sourcing some computers. I said, "Let me take a crack at it." Before you know it, he was feeding me business, and I did over half a million dollars worth of business in 18 months as a side hustle in the early 90s. And I said said to my wife, I'm going to quit my $60,000 a year job and um, become an entrepreneur, and I never looked back. But then sometimes businesses go sideways. I became partners with that guy. We had a really good partnership for 10 years. We started – we spun off a leasing company, which did really, really well, and then um, we had a falling out. It's just what happens. And then moved on to some other businesses that I've pretty much run solo ever since.
1: What are some of those other
0: businesses that, that you've been involved in? My last business was the home. I was in the home theater business. I was a custom integrator. So we built idiotically expensive home theaters that, that for people with more money than brains. Um It's kind of the way I used to describe it. It was a really fun, super tech business. Uh, this is back... You know, I sold that business over 10 years ago. So, this is back in the what we would call the OTS when flat screens were just coming out and everybody wanted, you know, the first stage of home automation and people wanted to build a theater in their house and all that stuff. And it was a lot of fun, but it was the worst business I ever ran. And it was just, these systems were just too complicated for people. And the what I call the contingent liabilities, which means after the job is done, uh, all the care and feeding and support that you had to do uh got to be very expensive and it's hard to charge people for truck rolls as we would call it in the business after they've spent 100 grand on checking out their house and now somebody does something stupid that causes the system to go offline no fault of ours i got to roll a truck that's going to cost me at least 500 bucks it generates ill will to send them a bill after they spent all that money for 500 bucks, even though you're legitimately owed that money because you're working on a referral basis and you want people to refer you. So it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a very, very, it was a very tricky business in that regard. But it was a lot of fun. We said we, we built some really cool stuff, which I liked a lot. What other businesses were you involved with besides that one? Uh, I built spec houses. I had a website that sold tech products like firewalls and other things. That was about 20 years ago. That's going back to like the, the dot bomb. The spec houses were, you know, we would buy a house for a million dollars and knock it down and then build a three million dollar house. And that business, my I shared this on the on the pre-call. my business partner committed suicide. Um, That was a real. There was, again, I wrote wrote about that in my book. That was a real eye-opening experience, God rest his soul. Oh, factory business, correct? Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry. I skipped over the factory business. Yes, after 9-11, um, uh, some people came to me to help them out with their cash flow, businesses that were uh, affected in, in lower Manhattan. Uh, because, you know, if you were a small business owner after 9-11, you couldn't get arrested uh, in New York City. Nobody wanted to touch you. So banks pulled their their loans. People were looking for creative ways to finance. So I had cash, and I said, "Okay, let let's see what I can do." And I created a factoring business, and I was you know one z two z factoring people's invoices. And again, for your listeners that don't know what a factor is, basically, if you've got a, you're a small company, you got a you have an invoice to a client for fifty grand, right? That has a value to it. Well, I'll buy that invoice for you for I don't know forty-seven-five, and I'll give you cash money today. And now I own that invoice. You're off the hook. So you took a little bit of a haircut for it, and now it's up to me to collect that that fifty grand. So if I collect the fifty grand, I made money. I made twenty-five hundred bucks on it. If, however, that that guy who owes fifty grand stiffs me, and I've had I famously had a client who went bankrupt owing us 50 grand. <laughs> Maybe a story for another day. You as the vendor are off the hook. You got your money. Now I'm on the hook to collect that. So it's very, very common in the um, clothing business. Almost every, my wife was a clothing designer for many, many years. And it's very, very normal for clothing, uh, clothing companies to use a factor because it's it managing their cash flow is really, really tough. So they're willing to take a couple points to get paid immediately.
1: So which of these businesses was the most fun for you or maybe the most successful
0: in your eyes?
1: The leasing business was
0: the most successful far and away. Um, now, the internet changed that, but back in the in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of money to be made in the leasing business. And the nice thing about it is my, my partner basically ran that. For me, uh, I didn't really have to do much and I got to Cash the checks. So talk about a passive, passive business. That was a that was an excellent business that we ran there for a long time. The most fun business, like I said, was the AV company, uh, just for the cool stuff that we were doing. But as a as a business goes, it, it's it was pretty awful. <laughs> running that yeah. business was really really tough. Um, I love what I do now because I'm a business coach. So you're running your business and I'm coaching you. So. You know, I'm not responsible for your for your P and L or your statement of cash flow or your or, or your balance sheet. I mean, I help you with it, but ultimately the decisions are yours. So it's a, it's a nice place to be in a you know sort of a, a consultancy kind of a role. Yeah, totally. When you were running these
1: businesses, how did you determine how much you were going to pull off and invest in in the stock market over all these years versus reinvesting in your businesses to grow those?
0: Great question. My philosophy was to take every nickel I could and put it into retirement money that I could then invest in the, in the markets. Because psychologically, once it goes in there, you realize it ain't coming out for 30 years, right? There's, there's something to be, to be said for that idea that let's, let's see how we can grow it. Where liquid money tends, tends to come and go. You know, you buy you, know, you buy yourself a new trinket. But I used to I, with that first business, I would fight with my business partner over. You know, I wanted to max out step accounts. Right at the time, I think the limit was somewhere in the thirty thousand or thirty to forty thousand dollars range. I want to put every nickel that we can. But he lived kind of hand to mouth, so he's like, I don't want to do that. And now, when you're in a in a partnership like that, you agree to agree or you agree to disagree. You can't. One partner can't can't put. 50 grand in a SEP account and the other one put zero. It's not allowed. It's got to be for everybody has to do the same thing. So we would have debates over that. And we'd have to come up with a compromise as to what was going to work for both of us. But yeah, I believe in the time value of money, right? I started putting money in a 401k plan, my very first job. And they they matched, the you know, they had matching on that. I'm like, that's free money, right? I want that. Yeah, give give me that. It's never too early to start. Somebody asked me on a podcast, what would I tell a 30-year-old who was just getting new to investing? I would say, where have you been for the last 10 years? You're late. Get with it.
1: <laughs> start soon, huh?
0: <laughs> start soon.
1: Yeah. So, Henry, as I listen to this story, you have all this money in the market, right? You have money and time that you've put into these entrepreneurial journeys and this small business. Just thinking about all that and this allocation and doing everything, I mean – and we talked about this before the show. you said there's a zillion ways to make money, right? Sure. There's also a bunch of ways to lose it. So how did you decide really where to focus your time and and what to go all into because in a sense, you've dabbled in in several different spaces, sure. right.
0: The way I look at it is the way I look at businesses is the same way that I that I I look at stocks, right? Because they're they're businesses. You milk that uh, old Bessie as long as she's giving milk, I'm gonna squeeze those teats, and when she runs dry, we're gonna have a barbecue. That's kind of how it is with entrepreneurial businesses. One of the one of the things that I see as a business coach is when people don't recognize it's time to pivot. Or in some cases, it's time to call it a day and find something else to do, right? Those are tough lessons. I've learned those lessons a couple times. The reason that that I ended businesses in multiple cases was because it had run its course, right? We've gotten out of it what we were going to get out of it. And the mistake that a lot of people make is they just hang on a little too long. They just don't know when the party's over and head for the exit, Right. We see that we see that in the in the in the stock market. We've seen that many, many times. It's usually the last one to the party who gets stuck with the bill. Right? The smart money people, they recognize that stuff has hit a wall and they get out. And that's that's really what I did with my businesses. Now, the first one it had to do with the fact that I had a partnership and the partnership had run its course even though the business was still was still viable in my opinion. But I, I just couldn't be partners with this person anymore. And that, that's, that's tough. But other businesses, home theater business after the, the great recession, people are not going to spend a hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars on something as discretionary as taking out their house. Time to do something else. So do you recommend partnerships then? Partnerships are great. No, no, it's, it's partnerships are great when they work, but when they don't work, uh it's 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 a train wreck. Uh there are great partnerships out there. You can look at, you know, in the tech business, Hewlett Packard or 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 the Steves, you know, Job and Wozniak. But again, that didn't last forever, right? Lasted for a few years and Wozniak, you know, took his coin and left and Steve went and founded next and eventually circled back to Apple on his own you know without Wozniak, who was the tech side. So if you if you draw a Venn diagram and you have a complementary skill sets with a little bit of overlap and that but it's just like a marriage, right? If anyone who I've been married it's sure, it'll, be, sure. it'll be 30 years, right? It has its ups and downs. Not that not that being single is is any walk in the park, but think about it if you're single, it's you your self-determination. It's just you,
1: right? Right, right. So let me just shift gears here and go sure. back real quick to your market investments, because we hit on this before the show, and cool. I, I think it was interesting. So you've really been through, and, and let me know if I'm missing any, four big market crashes, Correct. right? 87, the dot-com bubble, and 99, 2000, right? 2008, 2009, with mostly real estate, and obviously the stock market too, and now COVID. I'm just curious on your insight there, and we talked a little bit about how this market, I don't know if it's a crash, right? I guess maybe it is, but it came back so quick how it differs from those other three. But I'm just curious on your thoughts on that. And then going forward, these crashes seem to be every,
0: what, 10 years or so, right? If they're, you on about a, out. Yeah, they're on about a 10 to 12 year cycle, at least in my adult life. Yeah, that's an astute observation. I've made the same one. Um,
1: so does that, I guess, along with that, sorry to interrupt you, does that change your mind at all going forward
0: or behavior? No more so than getting on an airplane and realizing that, there's a possibility even though it's rather remote that this is going to go down and I'm going to go down with it right um there's a, again we're back to the concept of, of risk 87 pretty much the smart money people knew that the market was way 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 overvalued the dot bomb you know i saw it from the street cuz we were leasing stuff you know we 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 were leasing computers to bikini.com. like that's that's a real thing I think really viable in the long term. Um, there were plenty of signs that this market was going to turn. There were plenty of signs in 2007, 2008 that the, that the market was going to turn, right? Things were fundamentally broken in all three of those cases, right? COVID is different. COVID's like a true black swan event, right? It was it. the yeah, market was a little frothy but nothing like i had seen in in previous cases and um and that incredible spasm that the market had back in february or just sort of fell off a cliff that was you know that was classic panic like people don't had no idea and what what do people do when they have no idea right they circle their their wagons well if i don't know what i'm going to do you know what i'm just going to liquidate everything right and i'll sort it out later but I can't put my pillow down at night uh, knowing that my money is all at risk. And there's different – you
1: mentioned too like baseball cards, right? You said you collect baseball cards and there's I do. people getting into the space and every all the prices are shooting up. And we hear that, right? You see articles about that over and over about right. how with Robinhood really new people are getting into the market.
0: Sure. About – I wrote this in my newsletter a couple of months ago. I guess it was probably in May. But 800,000 people had opened new brokerage accounts, and that's just with three brokerage firms. I got to assume those were brand new investors, and they're coming in to this market. I mean, uh, I wrote about it. I said it was sort of like learning to surf because the waves were really big from a category five. You know what I thought? Oh, look at how big those waves are. Let's go learn how to surf. Um, <laughs> it just struck me as being so odd, and I was a little cavalier about it. It's like, hey, come on in, because um, I could use some more money, right? The pros are all salivating. They're like, we're gonna, we're gonna take your money from you. That's so what happens. The amateurs come in and they don't know what they're doing, and the pros are sitting back and saying, you know, go ahead, do what you want to do, and I'll, I'll take, I'll be happy to take your money and put it in my pocket. It's kind of how the world works. I applaud people getting into markets because I've been doing it again, like I said, since, since a teenager. But you got to learn how this stuff works. And it's complicated. And the, you know, the first chapter of my book is called The Psychology of Money. You've got to understand your market mindset. What is going to happen when there's another downdraft, another spasm? Are you going to liquidate your money and lock in your losses? You're going to ride it out. You're going to double down. What are you going to do? Like we said, a million ways to make money there's probably a million and one ways to lose it
1: <laughs> right right, yeah, so on that note what do you where do you go from here? Are you going to change things? We talked about where you were, where you are kind of now and and what's the future look like?
0: Well, the future for me is um you know i'm I'm almost an empty nester, my youngest is is um at the University of Utah. he's a sophomore. But they don't have any any classes there. So he's with four of his buddies in a house out in Salt Lake City. So I'm essentially an empty nester. We just bought this house in Connecticut. So we're moving. We close next month. Uh, We're kind of untethering ourselves from New York City uh, where we've been – You know, my wife grew up in in Queens and went to school in Manhattan. I mean, we lived in Manhattan for 30 years. So we're kind of cutting that umbilical cord and moving to the country. I expect our expenses to go down. Uh, one of our goals when the kids were born was to make sure they graduated with no college debt, and we've accomplished that goal. In fact, I think my youngest has more than enough – he actually has more than enough money in his account, so he will <laughs> he will actually graduate cash positive. How, you know, ain't that a kick in the head? Nice, um, yeah. When you think about the $1.5 to $2 trillion in student debt that's out there, there's a ton of it and there's something like nine million students who are who are in default on their student loans. So that's a that's a disaster that I don't know how to fix. But it is a it is a could you imagine like being twenty-two years old? I played golf with these young kids and one kid said, Yeah, I got a hundred thousand dollars in student debt. I Ooh. write a check every month. You yeah, wanna have that millstone around your neck? So so that's crazy. That's why I said get your money, you know, keep your powder dry when when markets go haywire. You know, buy when there's blood in the street. There's, you know, there's a million idioms. You know, for me, who's been doing it for 40 years, it, uh, I've learned to, to roll with the punches. But even this downdraft back in February, you know, gave me pause for a little bit because it wasn't fundamental. It was something weird like a virus. And the and the economy and in my lifetime or probably anybody drawing breath has never come to a complete stop, right? I mean that had never happened before. This is great data for economists. They'll be writing about this. And now, <laughs> from now before this, they were just modeling it. Well, now you've got real live data. What happens when you step on the brakes for an economy? I can tell you what happens. It contracts thirty percent. That's what happens. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that's what we saw. Yeah.
1: So let me just wrap up here with a couple of sure. questions. I know we're getting short on time. So you mentioned Towards. you mentioned spending. What's been
0: your do you know your
1: annual household spending?
0: Yeah, I track everything. I uh, I have a quick file that I track everything down pretty much down to the penny. So, yes, <laughs> I do know. It's one of the things I talk about in, in, in my book. The first the first three, you know, the first six chapters are all about figuring out your balance sheet, you know, your your net worth, figuring out where you're spending your money. Especially figuring out like where you're wasting your money, right? People waste a lot of money on stuff. I don't, I don't suggest to people that you'd stop going to Starbucks and go to 7-Eleven like I do to get your coffee, you know, to save three bucks a day or four bucks a day. That's not going to make you rich. True, but, but you will have more money, right? I mean, that's just, that's just arithmetic, but that's not a pathway. You know, you want, you want, um, use a football analogy. You're looking for chunks of yards, we're not looking for three yards in a cloud of dust. We're looking for chunks of yards. Where no. are we going to get those? So yes, to answer your question, sure, I know where my money goes. How much? How much do you spend annually, if you're willing to share? Two hundred grand, maybe. Okay. Do you remember
1: how old you were when you first became a millionaire?
0: Uh, I was 31 when my wife and I got married, and we had a net worth of zero. I can tell you that with absolute certainty. And I think I was. I think it was five years later. So I would have been 36 that we eclipsed a million dollars and we have never. It's quick. Never, never even come close to, to dipping below that since. Okay. So oh, however many years that is, 25 yeah. years. Yeah. Awesome. As much as you're comfortable sharing here, what's been your range
1: of annual household income?
0: Oh, it's ranged anywhere from probably 600,000 to, you know, a buck 280, <laughs> right? And it's been, it's been all over the map. It really depends on, you know, if you're, if, if I'm, I transitioned my business numerous times, so has my wife. So in those, in those years where you're transitioning, you may not have much income, not much taxable income. Whatever. Right. 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 Still have it. You know, you still got money that you're, that's, that you've got dividends reinvesting. So your retirement account, you know, might go up by, you know, might might go up by a couple hundred thousand dollars, but that's not really cash flow. So your balance sheet expanded, but your p and w- wasn't particularly great. You know, we've had years like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You Any know. specific financial goal? Wow, that's an interesting question. Any specific, you know what, I'm probably a putz for not really having a specific goal. Uh, you know, I want to die with a bunch of money in the bank that I can give to my kids. Right. I guess it's probably in the simplest terms, um, I think I'm already at a point where we're not going to outlive our money. So we've lived basically this you know, again, like I shared, we've been married for 30 years. Our lifestyle has not deviated in that 30 years. I can I can say that and I probably have the numbers to back that up. We do what we want to do, but we don't live extravagantly right? If we want to go to Europe, like we did last summer and went to Greece for two weeks, we have the money to spend to do that. But if three years go by and we don't don't take a big trip like that, that's fine too. Okay. We don't deprive ourselves, but we don't live extravagantly. Well, you mentioned a, a book you wrote and a newsletter. Where can people find you? website is called DAS Knowledge, D-A-A-S Knowledge. So if you go there, you'll find stuff about coaching, about FQ, which is the name of my book, FQ Financial Intelligence. You can actually download the book for free there's a link in there somewhere you kind of have to search around for it but um if you download my book for you know on the landing page you'll then get onto my newsletter or you can go to my blog and, and you can sign up for the newsletter yeah there's lots of fun stuff awesome
1: awesome well thanks so much henry for coming on again everybody that's henry net worth of over two million dollars so appreciate your time Thank,
0: thank you. thank you, you so much for having me i really appreciate it thanks henry